Good morning. How many of you, let me just uh, take a poll, how many of you were here last week and you came back? That's amazing. I'm, I'm shocked at that. Uh, Tom said, told, told me he was feeling really sick and so he asked me if I could come and preach and make the rest of you sick. Uh, and I told him I would try. You know, this is the first first Sunday of the new year, and some of you may have made already some New Year's resolutions. I have uh, I'm, I have two New Year's resolutions. One is I'm not going to cut my hair the whole year, really, no matter what my wife says, no matter how much it sticks out in the back. I'm just going for it like Einstein halfway. And the second is I'm not going to spend a penny this whole year. I've done it before. I've actually done it before. I have all, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to spend dollars and quarters and nickels and stuff, but just no pennies. And I have all my pennies from 1996, so this year I'm going for another record, 19, all the pennies from 2010. But I wanted us, since this is the beginning of a new year, to think about the sort of conversations that we have at the beginning of the year. We think about what we've done in the last year, and we think about what we'll do in the coming year, and, you know, you've heard, of course, that lots lots of uh, people join a gym at the beginning of the year, and they go once or twice, and, you know, gyms are always crowded at the beginning of the year, and then nobody goes after the first couple of times. But I wanted for us to think about a different kind of conversation, and it's a conversation that's found in the book of Luke. But before we look at that conversation, let's pray and ask the Lord if He would to bless us. Our Father, we are, we are thankful today because you have, you have given us another year. You have given us another opportunity to do those things for you that that we ought to do and to refuse to do those things that we ought not to do. We ask now that you'll bless us, that you will, that you will speak to us through your word, that you will give us a, a wonderful time around your scripture this morning, and that when we walk out of here, we will realize that, that this is not just the words of some person, but that these words were the words of the very living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The conversation is found in Luke chapter 18, if you happen to have your scriptures with you. And it's a story that Jesus tells about some prayer. And obviously, whenever we pray, we who believe in God believe that we are engaged in a conversation. And so, if you have your Scriptures with you, we'll turn to Luke chapter 18 and verse starting in verse 9. If you don't have your Scriptures with you, it's okay because we have them up on the screen there so you can just watch them. And this is Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And He also told this parable to some people who trusted in, in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
And the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a very famous book, you, you, you've all heard of it if, if you've not read it, written by Carl Menninger, and it's called Whatever Happened to Sin? And the book is essentially this question of whatever happened to that which is wrongdoing. And he tells this very famous story. I used to live in Chicago when I was going to school. I, I lived in on the outskirts of Chicago. And if you've ever been to Chicago, you realize that downtown there's this there's the loop that you ride. It's an elevated train. And Menninger tells this story of one day his office was in Chicago, and one day he was walking to, to got off the loop and was off the L and was walking to his his office in Chicago and there was a there were a variety of different sort of colorful characters always down there around the loop in Chicago and there was one man and every once in a while he would just walk up to someone and he would he would point to them and he would say you and then he would walk on and Menninger said the, the interesting thing about that was that those people would say, why did he point to me? Why didn't he point to that other person? I'm no worse than that other person. Why didn't he point to... The, he should have pointed to that other guy. Why didn't he point to the other person instead of pointing to me? And you see, this this story that Jesus tells us today is essentially a story that's told to those kinds of people, those people who trust in themselves. It's a parable. And one of the things that we should recognize is we should ask ourselves questions about how we understand parables, because parables are a particular genre of the Scripture. And we ought to think about what sort of things we should look for whenever we understand a parable, and what kind of things we should sort of sort of keep our eye out for whenever we understand a parable of the Lord. And there are a variety of things that we should look for, and you'll see them on the screen there. The first thing that we should look for are the main characters. Craig Blomberg in his book on parables tells us, and I don't want to bore you any more than I already am, so I won't tell you the variety of historical things behind this, but Blomberg essentially says that this idea that parables only have one point is really a mistake, and that generally parables will have as many points as they have main characters. And in this case, we really have three main characters. We have the, the Pharisee, we have the, the, the tax collector, 
and we have the Lord Himself. He enters into the parable because He makes some statements about what's going on in the parable. And so, whenever you read a parable, you should look for the main characters. And the second thing that you should look for in the parable is anything unusual. What kinds of things are happening that usually don't happen? For example, in in the parable of the prodigal son, for example, you remember that the the father runs to go and see his son when he makes his way back. Remember, the father is on top of the roof, and every day he looks for his son. Every day he keeps looking out for his son to come back home, and every day his son never makes it. But every day he just keeps going back up there and looking for his son. He never gives up hope. Every day he's just up there, up there, up there never giving up hope like a Chicago Cubs fan. He's up there every single day saying, this could be the day. And finally, one day he does see his son coming, and he runs out to meet his son. Now, to us, that doesn't seem very unusual, you see, because we run, men run in our culture all the time. I mean, you, you know, it just it just happens. We run and not just from the police. We run from all, you know, just for exercise. But in Middle Eastern culture, men who wear robes rarely run. It was, it was considered sort of, it, 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 it detracted from your, your manliness to run. And so whenever you see a man running in the New Testament, there's something unusual going on. It's the same thing in Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus runs and climbs up a tree, there's something going on there that, that, that we ought to look at as unusual. So whenever you look at a parable, you ought to look at those things that are unusual. And then the last thing that you ought to look at in terms of, of understanding a parable is the in-stress. What is it that's shocking about the parable? I tell my students, if you can't understand what about this parable would have made people want to kill Jesus, then you probably haven't really understood the parable. And you see, the truth of the matter is that we've taken these parables and we've made them sort of bedtime stories for children, and we fail to understand how, how truly countercultural they really are. When I first started working at Coral Ridge a long time ago, long time ago. We, we were having a, uh, a vacation Bible school about the parables, and so I said, what we really want to do is try to, try to get the kids to understand how shocking the parables were in their first century setting. So we were doing this parable about the, the Good Samaritan, and so they said, so what should we do to get the parable of the Good Samaritan to be as shocking as, as it would have been in the first century setting. And I said, okay, how about if we have the parable of the good drug dealer? They didn't really go for that. but Because you see, the, what they said was, there aren't any good drug dealers. And, and the point that I made to them was, in the first century, there weren't any good Samaritans. Today, we hear the Good Samaritan all the time, and it just seems like Good Samaritan, they go together. But in the first century, there weren't any Good Samaritans. 
And so, if we're to understand the parable, we have to understand these things. So, with all those things in mind, let's look at these characters in the parable and see if we can understand precisely what's going on. The first character that we see, and I've I've given them names so that they rhyme, so that maybe you can take them away with you. The first character, I've given the name of the self-fan, that is the Pharisee. He is a fan of himself. He steps up to the temple and realizes that in the temple there were places where one could pray, and praying out loud was not unusual. People prayed out loud, but to pray out loud so loud that everyone could hear you and so that you disturbed other people, that was that was a little different. And and this this man shows his his pride, his his fanaticism about himself. He shows that in verses eleven and twelve in the way that he prays. You'll notice a couple of things. You'll see that first of all, his pride is shown in that he thinks he's better than other people. The Pharisee stood and he was praying this to himself. It's interesting that that phrase there, praying this to himself, is is a difficult phrase to translate in the in the Greek text. It's difficult to tell whether the to himself means that he was standing off to himself or whether he was praying to himself, which, and I won't bore you with that. But the interesting thing is what the Pharisee says. He says to the Lord, thank you for not making me like these other people. You see, he says things like, thank you for not making me a swindler. And the word swindler there means like an extortionist or... Bernie Madoff or, you know, somebody like that. So you can imagine somebody standing up in church and saying, God, thanks for not making me Bernie Madoff after he went to prison, I mean. You can imagine that. That's precisely what the Pharisee is saying there. And and then he says, thank you for not making me unjust or an adulterer. And by saying, thank you for not making me an adulterer, he's saying, by the way, I just so all of you know, I'm not an adulterer. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm not an adulterer. And then he says, as if to add insult to injury, he says, or even like this tax collector. The tax collector who apparently is standing there with him is is he's saying thank you for not making me like him? It's significant. Now I, I don't want to tell you everything I know about the Pharisees because believe me, you don't want to know. Uh, the, the, but but the interesting thing about the Pharisees is that they this doesn't represent every single Pharisee. You don't want to take this Pharisee and say every single Pharisee acted like this. Many of the Pharisees simply did the best that they could to try to obey the law of God. The problem was that obeying the law of God never ends, you see. And so there's this book called the Mishnah. It was written about 200 A.D., written by a strand of Phariseeism. And and the Mishnah is essentially 
a, a book about how not to break the Ten Commandments. So you might ask yourself, okay, I don't want to break the Sabbath. What if a beggar comes to my door and I hand him a bowl of food? Is that breaking the Sabbath? Well, there's a whole section in the Mishnah on how to know whether or not you're breaking the Sabbath. <clears throat> and there are things like, if you set, if the beggar sets the bowl inside your house and you fill it up inside your house and he reaches inside your house and takes it out, then you haven't broken the Sabbath. But if you reach outside your house and get the bowl, then you've broken the Sabbath. There are all kinds of things like that. Like if you tie a knot, you can only tie a knot with one hand. There are all, all, all sorts of very specific things about they are laws that are added on to the Ten Commandments to make sure they are sort of, they are sort of um, fences built around the Ten Commandments to make sure that you don't break the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and of course, what happened was people then started asking questions, well, how do I know whether or not I've broken the Mishnah? So the Mishnah is a book about this stick, and... Then about 600 A.D., there's this book written called the, the Talmud. There are two different Talmuds, Jerusalem Talmud and Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is about 35 volumes. It's about this long. And the ba Babylonian Talmud is, is to make sure that you don't break the Mishnah. And so you can imagine what happens is that it just keeps going on and on and on and on. And... What happens is that these Pharisees were saying, we're doing more than God requires of us. We know what God requires of us. We know these laws that God requires of us, but we're not, we're, we haven't broken them. We have absolutely not broken them. And you can see how that leads to pride. You can see how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. This man says, thank God for not making me an adulterer. But Jesus says, if you've committed, if you've looked at a woman to lust after her, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says, all these laws that you've made, they're just too easy. They're just too easy. You just, it, it never works, you see. You can never have pride because you haven't broken the law of God. I read this week this story of a woman who went to the minister and she said, I, I need help with a particular sin. And she said, every time I look in the mirror, I feel pride about how beautiful I am. And the minister said, that's not pride, that's poor eyesight. <laughs> and there's a sense, you see, in which the pride that the Pharisees felt was not really pride because they hadn't broken the law of God. It was a pride of misunderstanding. It was a pride of failing to realize just what God required of them. And so, as the, as the Pharisee stood there as a fan of himself, he really didn't realize just how serious God's law was. But there's a second character in the parable. And you'll see him, he is the publican. So there's the self-fan, there's the publican. So they sort of rhyme in a way, and it 
you know, in some sort of a Dr. Seuss's universe. They, they rhyme. And you'll notice a couple things about this, this publican. There were a variety of different kinds of tax collectors that existed during the time of Christ. The one that you see there in that picture is a, 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 a tax collector that essentially collected toll booths by the side of the road. You can see that there. He's collecting toll booths as people get off the boat. And there were people who collected toll booths as people got off the boat. And then there was someone who was in charge of all of those in a particular city who collected those tolls. And then there was someone who was in charge of a particular region, so it, it went up and went up. Zacchaeus was apparently very high up because he had made a lot of money. We don't know exactly what kind of uh, publican this man was. He was some kind of a toll booth, op, some kind of a, a tax collector, very likely one like this, like one that just collected one by the side of the road. And he was ashamed. There's this... There's this antithesis between the kind of attitude that the, that the Pharisee brings and the kind of attitude that the, the tax collector brings. The tax collector is not proud of himself at all. He's ashamed, and he's ashamed of who, who he was. He's ashamed of the fact that he's a tax collector. And the tax collector stands some distance away. He doesn't want to get up close to the to the publican because he know to the to the Pharisee because he knows that that the Pharisee doesn't want him getting up close to him. And he's ashamed not just of who he was, a tax collector, but he's ashamed of what he did. And in order to understand why the tax collectors were hated by and they were hated, I've I've tried for a long time to try to think of a job that is as hated in our culture as a tax collector would have been in that culture. It just doesn't work. Uh, it's not someone who works for the IRS. It's just not even close. It's not the same thing. You see, because th the fact is that Israel was under the... Rome overtook Israel. And they could... They, they, they were essentially this army that could do whatever they liked to the land of Israel. And the tax collectors were the Jewish people who went around taking money from the Jewish people, keeping some of it for, for themselves, and yet giving most of it to the Roman government. And so they were these traitors, first of all, so they were hated. Not only were they traitors, but they were thieves, because the Roman government essentially said, listen, this is how much we want in terms of tax. Get whatever you can and keep the rest for yourself. And so this tax collector realizes that he's done a great deal of things wrong. He realizes that there are a variety of things that he, that he shouldn't have done, and he stands there. And I want you to, I want you to re recognize a couple of interesting things that he says in verse 13. He says in verse 13 at the very end of it, notice that he says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. If you have the New American Standard, it translates the sinner. The Greek text, he says the sinner. There's a sense in which the, the tax collector is saying, I recognize that I am the prototypical sinner. I am, 
I am the worst of the worst. I am the, the person that no one likes. I am the person that no one cares about. I am the person that nobody pays any attention to. I am the sinner. But there's a second word that you should pay attention to, and that is that word that's translated in the New American Standard, God be merciful. The word be merciful there is a word that's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. And, and in, in reality, what it says is, God, please make propitiation for me. He is saying, God, please pay the debt for me that I can't pay. There's a sense in which the tax collector is saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying to God, to whom he's praying, he's saying, God, I know that the sins that I have committed are so terrible that I have placed myself in a position that I owe God money and I will never be able to pay it. And I ask you that you would pay it for me. That's what the tax collector is asking for. And so you see then this great contrast. The Pharisee who says, look at how good I am, and the tax collector who says, I realize how bad I am. And that brings us to the third character in the parable. Not really a character, but he is this, this, this man, Jesus Christ, who's telling the parable. He is the God-man. And we realize that he's the God-man for a couple of reasons. We realize that because... He, 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 he knows who is justified. You'll notice that in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He's saying the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other man. It's an amazing thing. You see, that's the shocking thing about this parable. The shocking thing about this parable is that not that the Pharisee, whom we would have expected, the Pharisee in our culture would be the minister who carries his Bible, dresses nice, maybe even wears a bow tie. He's the guy that, you know, that you expect to be on top of things. But the shocking thing is that the tax collector is the guy that nobody expects to be right. And yet the only reason that he's right is because of the fact that he has thrown himself onto the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is God because he recognized that, recognizes that. And he recognizes why this man is justified. In verse 13, when he says, pay this debt for me or make atonement for me, he is saying, I know that I can't take care of this myself. I've got to have help. And the only way, the absolute only way that I'll ever be able to be in the kingdom of heaven is if you pay that debt for me. And so I have a question for you today, and that is, who are you? And today, 
you are one of several kinds of people. It may be that you're a a full-blown Pharisee, and you may be able to walk out of here saying, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. I probably should have stayed afterwards and straightened him out. Maybe some of you are tempted right now to come up to me after the service and straighten me out. It's okay. It's happened before, and it'll happen again, I can assure you. Somebody will come up and tell me how wrong I am, and probably they're right. I don't know. There's one thing that I know for certain, and that is that there is no hope apart from the atonement of Jesus Christ. But you see, there's a second kind of person that we can be, and that is a recovering Pharisee. I've often thought that I should have a t-shirt made like that, recovering Pharisee, because that's what we who are Christians really are, aren't we? And we find ourselves slipping back to that every great once in a while, or sometimes some of us more than, more than every great once in a while. We find ourselves falling back and, 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 and saying, look at how bad that person is. Look at how bad that person is. At least I'm not as bad as that person. But you see, the truth is we cannot judge ourselves based upon how bad someone else is. We only can judge our person based, our, ourselves based upon the perfection of Christ. And in that sense, we are all absolutely wanting. But some of you may not be a recovering Pharisee. Some of you may be a self-aware sinner. Some of you may be just like that tax collector who stood there that day and realized just how many things you have done that are against the law of God, and you realize just how, how much your debt is against God, and you realize that you'll never, ever be able to pay it. And today, the greatest news that I can give you is that Jesus Christ, just as He stood ready to pay the debt for that tax collector, He stands ready to pay the debt of the tax collector today. Not because of anything that you've done for yourself, not because of anything good that you have in yourself or anything good that you have accomplished, but only because Jesus Christ came to pay the debt that we could never, ever pay. That's the great news of the gospel. That the gospel is not for Pharisees who, who, who think of themselves as so good, but the gospel is for tax collectors who know themselves to be bad. A couple of weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, I read a letter from Santa Claus, I had read it before, a, re- a letter to Santa Claus from a young man. And the letter said, Dear Santa, there are three boys that live at my house. 
there is John, he is two, and he is good some of the time. There is Robert, he is four, and he is good some of the time. There is Alfred, he is six, and he is good all of the time. I am Alfred. Sometimes we think we're Alfred, don't we? But the truth is, we're tax collectors. Tax collectors who are desperately in need of the grace of God. And today, I would urge you to make sure that you know that the Lord Jesus Christ has made atonement has made payment for you so that when you stand before God, you can say not, listen, I'm a Pharisee. I tithe twice a week. You can say, I'm a tax collector, but I'm one whose debt has been paid by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that You have sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt that we could never pay. And I pray now that You will bless Your Word as it goes forth, that You will bless this parable, that it will speak to the hearts of those who are here, and that we all, will walk out realizing <clears throat> that we have nothing apart from Your Son. And we pray this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.